Today, I'm joined by Ben Orenstein, the CEO of Tuple, a pair programming application for remote developers. He also previously worked at the ThoughtBot software consultancy and has a lot of conference speaking and developer education experience. Ben, I wanted to talk to you about your career going from programmer to CEO of a company and software development in general over the last 10 years. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. And I have to say, it's it's kind of weird to have someone talk about my career as like this long thing, or like I've been in the industry long enough to see like these macro changes happening. Uh, it's it's weird getting old enough where that is possible. That means that we're both still healthy enough for that to happen, right? <laughs> yes. No. It's it's a privilege, if anything. The first thing I'd like to start with is just some trends of the last decade, and you can kind of go into what your opinion is on it, or if you have any other kind of thoughts to add on to that. Okay. So the first one I would like to ask is there's kind of this trend of people going, uh, I need to be a full stack developer. And so what's your opinion on, you know, specializing on one thing, like being really good at back end versus being really good at front end versus this whole concept of full stack? I think the good news there is that it kind of doesn't matter. And so if you really enjoy working across the different uh, boundaries, then that is something that some places will be totally into and want to recruit you. And if you want to get hyper focused and because you just are like nuts for Postgres, you can totally find work doing that too. I suspect it's getting harder and harder to really be full stack as the each layer gets kind of more complicated. Um, but it's nice that you can sort of make either work. And how about, you know, I know your background is in working in Ruby, um, but kind of lately there's been a lot of talk about uh, adding static type checking to Ruby and sort of this conversation between is it better for a language to be dynamic versus static? What are your your thoughts on that? I think at the end of the day, there's no way that brains are going to get way better at helping us make correct programs. So we might be able to write programming languages uh, that make it slightly easier for our brains to effectively hold lots of things in our head or to catch errors and things like that. But I think Eventually, there's just no way where computers aren't better at checking these things and paying attention to these sort of things. And so today's dynamic and today's static languages, it still feels like the pros and cons are kind of equal-ish. So I think you can basically, you know, there's, there's nice things about static languages and there's nice things about dynamic languages. And it's not clear to me that anyone has one exactly. Uh, and it's, it would be a reasonable choice to pick either, I think. Um, particularly based on what you're trying to do. But I think over the long term, uh, outsourcing the thinking and the checking and the correctness to a computer feels like it has to be the the future. Mm, So that kind of ties into a question in terms of how do you know when you should stick with what you know versus, okay, it's time to jump on to a new language or a new stack? Um, I think that can kind of just be a personal decision, actually. And it, so you can kind of, again, because we're fortunate in, to be in a world where there's a lot of demand, you can kind of do what makes you happy. So you could still write COBOL full-time and make a lot of money because there's so few <laughs> COBOL programmers and so much COBOL code. So if, if you wanted to like not update your tech stack from what it was in the 70s or whenever that was a thing, that's totally still like feasible as a career path. And so if you just decide that Ruby is the last language you want to learn, you can, that, is, that will totally work. I'm convinced you can make it to retirement uh, without having to pick up a new language because there'll be so much Ruby to, to maintain. And, and it would be also fine to write new Ruby. Uh, but my, my guess is that most people will be somewhat bored by that. And I think they also will be well served. Like if, you are, if you're staying up to date and learning new things and, and pushing yourself, I think that can lead to a lot of positive uh, professional growth. And if your target company is something more startup-y, the latest stuff is more likely to be in use. And so you probably want to move yourself in that direction. But if you don't care about that, then you can kind of not worry about it. Like I, for example, I, I basically don't know JavaScript. Like <laughs> I get that it's a thing. I know it's important. I know how widespread it is. Uh, I, I almost can't write a line of JavaScript. And turns out I've had a pretty decent uh, development career without that. And so if I wanted to go, there's, it keeps you from doing certain things, but uh, I've been able to more or less ignore it uh, because I don't really want to learn it. And it's been fine, turns out. And you've been ignoring JavaScript, but in terms of the back end, are you at the point where you're thinking to yourself, okay, if I was going to start coding again, um, I would write it in another language? Um, when I think about doing side... So I, I am still writing some code, not a ton, uh, but some, and it's, it's, it's all Ruby right now. I am tempted by other languages and frameworks quite a bit. Um, I think Clojure is beautiful. 
It's like one of the best design languages that I'm aware of. Um, I would love to write like a substantial thing in Clojure. Uh, but whenever I have a sort of new side project idea, I'm like, okay, do I want to maximize the chances that I actually ship this thing? Or do I want to use it as a learning opportunity for a new technology? And I find that pretty much every time I do the technology thing, I don't really get very far. And so I think if I'm going to pick up a new, like a large new tech stack at this point, it's going to have to be a really concerted effort. Like I probably need to like book a house somewhere and just be like, all right, for this next. And this, this is the thing I've done in the past um, with, with a friend uh, or a couple of friends is like, all right, we want to learn this thing. Let's, let's just go do this and nothing, nothing but this for like a, a week straight to kind of get our, our feet wet. How about when you're building, you're designing an application, um, you know, over the last decade, there's kind of been this back and forth between, um, you know, we started with monoliths, then we kind of went to uh, service-oriented architecture, then now people are talking about microservices, and now people are going back to monoliths, and it's kind of like, where do you sort of lie on that spectrum of like, how should people decide what they should do? Um, it would be hard to give prescriptive advice for the entire world uh, based on no context. Um, I will say that I think it's a pretty reasonable strategy to start with a monolith and then later refactor to other services if you find that the pros and cons work out in your favor substantially. There's a lot of simplicity to be gained by having all your code in one place, and you're sacrificing quite a bit of that to go to any sort of external services, uh, particularly microservices. And so I think it's just important to go into it with your eyes open and, and, and understand the pros and the cons. And I think actually that's like my meta answer or like my higher level answer for basically everything in, in software development is that pretty much every approach is a particular set of pros and cons to it. And so the, the trick is understanding what those are and matching the choices to your situation. Kind of similar to that, when you're deciding whether to use something like, say, AWS directly or use a service on top of that, like, say, Heroku or Now or something like that, what are kind of the, the different, I guess, decision points or criteria you're looking at? Well, for me... I've basically been a Heroku convert since I discovered it like eight years ago or something. Um, and it's because for me, the, the the part of the stack that I like focusing on is like application level and and messing around with servers and SSHing into things is just not my particular cup of tea. And so I'm, I'm happy to to pick that, the trade-offs that those services involve. But uh, like it's, it's not the same for everyone. And sure. we're now, we're not quite there, um, but we are now paying more to Heroku than you know, would be ideal in a perfect world. Mm -hmm. um, like we have a, at least a four-figure Heroku bill now. And so it's like, okay, I can start to see why people, you know, use more of their own things eventually. Like you start to say, okay, maybe we can manage this ourselves at the, and the trade-offs start to make sense as the price gets high enough. You know, with Tuple, um, you said you're using Heroku and you got a pretty high bill and whatnot. Um, how about SaaS services? Like, for example, there are services for customer chat or for authentication or for databases like for example Firebase or Auth0 that sort of thing um, sort of what are the things you look at kind of you know as the CEO of the company when you're deciding okay we should just kind of build it ourselves or we should use one of these these services um, I don't know that I have a general rule I, I think I tend to choose to use someone else's thing rather than build it ourselves I've seen um how quickly a oh well, we can build a simple version in you know two days i've experienced the reality of coming back to that simple version over and over and over and over again and pouring more and more work into it and ending up with something that's like you know 60 percent as good as if we'd paid for someone who specializes in it so my default is probably to try to use something that someone else is going to build and maintain and and that's true for like you know open source requirement like dependencies and, and other paid services um but Every so often, you really just do need the simple version, and you actually can get by. Uh, and it's kind of hard to predict uh, mm -hmm. when that's true. So I don't know that I have a, a a great rule for that. Yeah, I mean, specifically with Tuple, I, I believe I remember hearing that you know you wrote your own authentication, or rather you used the device gem, which is kind of like a Rails um, library for authentication. So I'm kind of wondering is, you know, are there certain things like, for example, authentication or managing your users where you would say, like, this is kind of the type of thing that I would prefer to keep, you know, within my own app? Uh, authentication, I, I think of using Devise as like not writing our own authentication. It's pretty much it's someone else's code to me. Um, and like for, for sure, especially around like password hashing and things like that, like I don't want to go anywhere near any of that. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm not even, I can't, I'm having trouble. We have like, we wrote our own user management stuff, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's pretty simple and right. there's always this layer you have to write. So we use Stripe for, for billing, but there's always a sort of intermediate level of like, okay, well you still need to have some stuff locally and kind of sync it back to Stripe and handle failures in this way and all this. Um, so we ended up writing some of our own billing code. Uh, but for the most part, we're actually, we've been relying pretty heavily on external things and, and mm-hmm. pushing dependencies away from us. Like we're trying to be really good at making a great remote pair programming app and not great at the rest of it and letting other people that are good handle those things. For sure. Just because the remote pair programming aspect is really about sending someone's screen and that's really kind of heavily seeped in WebRTC and in um, low latency programming and stuff like that, that you can't just go in and buy something because if you could, then somebody would have already made the app. Exactly. It's the core competency and it's the thing that we, you know, will spend years getting, making better and better and have already spent a lot of time on. Uh, and that's what people are paying us for. No one's really paying us for like a, a wonderful authentication backend. Like they don't, it needs to be secure. It needs to work, but it's not a differentiator. One of the the reasons I ask is because sort of there's, there's this trend, I think, particularly within sort of the JavaScript community of of saying like, okay, you know, maybe I don't need a backend, I could just use Firebase. And maybe I don't need to have server-side code for my authentication because I can use, I believe there's like Auth0 and I think Okta is another one. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, wondering, it's like, do you feel like in future projects or future work of yours that you would move in that direction? Or is there kind of like always going to be this set of certain things that you're going to keep in your own code base? Um. I've never moved those particular things out of a code base I worked on and said, you know what, we got to stop storing data and use Firebase instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but Heroku has really nice hosted Postgres, so it's like I have really kind of actually used another person to, right. to handle that. Right. Um, authentication, I sort of don't even really understand what it means to not have authentication in your own app exactly. I'm not like I don't really get what Auth0 does, um, to be honest. So I don't know, but I maybe who knows. One of the things I'd like to do is kind of go back to the start of your career. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about your experience starting as a, as a new software developer. Sure. Um, so it really kind of actually begins at college for me. So I majored in computer science, uh, but I also majored in like being a really terrible student. And uh, the second major won. And so uh, I did not graduate. I was a bit too immature and like kind of terrible at tackling large projects and breaking work down and not procrastinating and all this. I uh, just had horrible like academic skills. Um, so I uh, did not graduate, uh, which actually, as you'd imagine, made it tough to jump into uh, programming as a career. So I, I had to sort of work my way in from the side. So I started like in IT consulting, like fixing networks and things like that. Uh, I eventually found this entry-level programming job. And it was great because it was entry-level and they were willing to accept me without a degree. And... I got in and I got hired and after just a couple of weeks I realized like this place was kind of the strongest not invented here company I've I've ever even heard of to the point that they like they wrote their own email client they wrote their own um, originally they used to write their own operating system to run on the wow. mainframes that the software <laughs> that, that then like they, they programmed to run the software eventually they they, get, they started to start using windows but they wrote their own when I when I left they were uh, getting ready to write their own version control it was like a, it was, they wrote their own programming language as well. Um, so there was like this weird, not invented here thing. And so I was learning these proprietary one company uh, tools and languages mm. uh, and, and also just kind of a, a, a dearth of uh, good software engineering practices. So I, I was reading about, you know, how do you do, run a good software engineering team and what are good, what are the things you should be doing? And we were doing so few of them. Um, so it was hard um, and I, I was extremely demotivated by it. And I was playing with Ruby on the side. Uh, on the like the nights and weekends, and I was using this really bad language at work, and I was using this beautiful language on the side, and I was like, "Man, I have to." This is great that like I'm in the right uh, field now. Like I'm, I'm glad I'm programming. This is this is what I want to do, but this this particular company is terrible. And it was funny because at the time I thought I was a terrible worker because I was so demotivated, and I was like, "Oh man, I, I'm horrible at work." And it, it turned out uh, actually that I was just demotivated by the circumstances, and so that was like affecting my work. Uh, but I, I was able to turn the nights and weekends Ruby and Rails work into uh, my next job, which was wonderful, uh, by just just having done enough, like just kind of like making a couple play apps and teaching myself and just sort of self-study that I found someone passed along a job listing and they were looking for an entry-level Rails person. 
And it turns out I had just enough to kind of get me in the door there. And that was really where the, the curve of my career started. And, you know, for you, while you were at that job, when you first started, you said you thought that you personally were just not a good developer. And so was it really doing research outside of work that really kind of taught you like, oh, this is this is what I really want to be doing and, and I'm not, you know, it's not me, basically. Uh, I didn't know it wasn't me at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I knew that there was this other, there was like a better way to do it and there were better tools. And, and so that was frustrating, but I didn't realize how much that frustration was affecting my own productivity. Mm. Um, and I like, I, uh, yeah, I, I didn't, it, I didn't figure that out for a while. I think I, I was kind of until I got into this better circumstance mm-hmm. uh, with better tools and better coworkers and just better everything. Yeah. And I was super motivated and yeah. I was very productive and I was like, oh yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't just a, a constant. It was actually a variable. Mm-hmm. And for someone who finds themselves in that kind of position, you know, finds themselves in a job where they feel like they're not productive, they're not motivated, um, what would you tell that person to kind of make them realize, like, you know, it's maybe it's just time to move on, maybe it's not, it's not you? I mean, I guess it's, it's hard to see in the moment is the thing. So like I said, I didn't figure it out until I left. I guess it depends on if the other stuff, like if, if things outside work appeal to you. Like I, I was having fun working on Ruby on the side uh, and that felt enjoyable uh, and fulfilling. And so um, that I guess was probably a good clue that a lot of my dissatisfaction was the circumstance and not just that programming in general. Uh, I don't know if I have like general tips on that though. Mm-hmm. Working in that environment, what did it sort of teach you about when you looked for that next job? Um, you know, were there certain things that you looked for during the interview hmm. process or kind of in the job posting, that sort of thing? I feel like every job I have teaches me new questions to ask before I take the next job. Uh, and I don't know if there's a great way to get those without the first-hand experience, although maybe I should, I'm realizing I should probably write a blog post about some of these things. Uh, because you, you sort of don't realize the axes along which companies and jobs can vary until you've seen multiple points along the axis. Um, like, oh, I didn't even think there would be somewhere that wouldn't let me work on side projects until I went somewhere and they were like, oh, we, we own everything that you do on the right. side. Like, mm. What? I had no <laughs> idea to even think about that before, until you're telling me to sign this uh, this document here. Yeah. And I say, and it becomes a whole fight. Um, so yes, every single job has changed how I approach the next one. Unfortunately, the the list of things that I would, I would ask about are mostly from sort of scar tissue mm. of bad experiences. <laughs> You know, in your your next job, uh, you said you kind of started as an entry-level Ruby on Rails developer. Um, What were your responsibilities then? Was it just taking, you know, tickets out of a backlog and you were working on code? Or was there kind of more of a, um, you know, a role of figuring out what's the right thing to build? Uh, Definitely the latter, which was great. I was on a really small team. It was just three of us. And we were sort of this independent um, Skunk Works kind of team inside a healthcare organization, uh, but and so we were sort of the, the tech people that could come in and build custom software, and so we uh, accomplished kind of the first main goal for which the group was established pretty early on, and so we we kind of just suddenly had time, and we were our salaries were already paid by this grant that had come in, and so we could just kind of drop into a department and talk to them about what their process looked like, um, and. Like one of my favorite projects was we went and met with their clinical trials department and the clinical trials department had an enormous spreadsheet that 80 people edited simultaneously uh, and, and like giant uh, file cabinets full of papers that they would use to check for deadlines and things like that. And it was like, wow, we, we're going to be able to help you so much with such a simple app. Uh, and so I got to be a part of that whole thing, just con- from the, you know from concep- conception of this idea, uh, and that was that was wonderful. That's the that's the kind of thing that I really really enjoy. In that particular case, it was kind of easy because like the the pain was so clear. Mm-hmm. Like they would tell us like we have all these deadlines we have to hit, and so every Monday we go through every piece of paper and look for the the due date and we check it and we make sure it's not coming up soon and and then we move it to the bottom of the stack. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, I'm gonna blow your mind. <laughs> Or it's like, you know, just attaching a series of documents to a, a single clinical trial was like a, a, a huge benefit for them. So that anyone mm-hmm. could like click it and, and view the document and attach new ones and put a, put a new version. Like track, track versions was also a huge thing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, like show me all the due dates across all the trials. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, that's wow, what an innovation. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it was, and that was kind of like a nice uh, springboard into this uh, word because it's not always so clear. I think um, people that are in desperate need of fairly simple custom software are kind of the ideal sweet spot of development. I think mm-hmm. a lot of the times it's it's a little bit more subtle what you're going to have to build to make people happy. For sure, and, and I feel like sometimes, um, you know, that Excel spreadsheet that people have, sometimes that that actually does work just fine. And, and oh yeah, it's, it's sort of like that balance between. Um, in your case, it sounds like building custom software, you know, was like a really big game changer for them. Right. Yeah. The, the problem they had was not Excel. The problem they had was that they were they had eighty people editing right, at the same time, right. um, and that there were just things that Excel was not super well suited for. For sure. Um, and so Excel alone is uh, not necessarily a smell that there's a product there, although it's probably a decent, you know, it's it's a good initial sign, uh, but it's Excel plus pain is yeah. kind of more what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, I guess pain, just pain in general, right, is usually a is a good totally. sign. Yep. But Excel or something like it combined with pain is even better because there are lots of pains that are not good app ideas. Mm. And one sign, one sign that a pain is not a good business idea is that people have not tried to solve it with something else already. Right. So it's like, oh yeah, no, we totally agree. This does suck. Like, oh, like what have you done to try to fix that? Oh, nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> it's not actually a problem. It's just fun to complain about. Uh, but oh, like this thing is terrible. Like, oh, what have you done so far? Well, we have this enormous Excel spreadsheet and we mail it around. Okay, there we go. That's mm-hmm. now we're on to something. Yeah, and so following that job was your job basically or the title was that basically just a software engineer or was there any yeah something like that yeah okay you know in jobs after that you kind of started to take on more responsibilities right beyond just as a software engineer um what was kind of the next position you took and sort of how did it compare to the previous one so my next job after that was at thoughtbot which is a ruby on rails consultancy uh we were based in boston and I started off as a consultant there, like one of the web developers. And so I was building Rails apps for other uh, companies. But along the way, I very much got the bug of um, trying to build a product for people on the internet, something that people would buy from me. And I decided to make a screencast for developers, Rails developers who use Vim. Because I got really good with Vim and I got like, at a very sort of tailored set of plugins and processes and workflows for uh, writing Rails apps in Vim. And my coworkers really appreciated it when I was like kind of giving them tips during pair programming. And so I was like, I bet I could sell a screencast teaching these things. And so I spent a few weekends and um, put together something and then put it up for sale and started making money. Uh, and like pretty quickly like sold like $1,000 worth of uh, $9 screencasts. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is uh, amazing. And uh, around this time, ThoughtBot, my employer, was... That, that This was all on the side that I did that. And then my th- employer was also selling educational content. So they were like doing uh, workshops in person and charging big money for them. And every time they did, people would ask, hey, like, could, could I take this remotely? Or could I watch a recording of it for some cheaper price? And so eventually they did record those workshops and put them up for sale. And so they were making some money from educational products. Um, I worked at a, a revenue share deal where I put my screencast on the ThoughtBot, you know, collection of products, and uh, we we sort of split the revenue from that. Uh, and then one day, I went to the CEO and I said, um, I think ThoughtBot should make a um, recurring revenue model, put all the educational stuff underneath it, and produce way more content, and create this like large community of of people that are trying to learn to be better Rails developers. And he said, uh-huh. Okay, go ahead and do it. And so that actually became my new job. And I ended up kind of more or less starting a company inside the company. Uh, and that was called Upcase. And that uh, I ran that for some number of years. Uh, and that was uh, really my f- kind of first major foray into like building a, a, a thing, like a proper like business. Uh, and it was uh, super formative. It was exactly what I wanted to do because I was, I was still really enjoying programming. And I, and I love teaching programming. But the amount of skill I had in programming versus the amount of skill I had in like, how do you make a business uh, was completely different. And I wanted to bring those more in line. And so this let me actually focus on that and learn those things while still drawing a developer salary, which is pretty wonderful. Like the risk is, was basically nothing um, to me personally um, and more or less to ThoughtBot. Uh, so it was a, a very nice like learning laboratory for those, those new skills. And how big was the, the team you were working with and kind of what were, how were people's roles delineated? Pretty small. Um, it was just me for a while. Uh, we eventually hired a full-time producer who helped us like make videos and podcasts. 
And then we would occasionally, when when Thoughtbot consultants were free, like when they weren't booked on clients, we'd like bring them onto the project. And so occasionally the team would get as big as four or five, but it was usually more like two to three. You know, you're kind of talking about how the team would grow and shrink. Um, you know, were the roles of people, were they like designers or were they like programmers or what, what was the type of kind of... It was a mix. It depended on what we were trying to do. So Upcase was, a, we were selling content. And so the the easy answer to what should we do now is make more content generally. And so a lot of the times we were spending uh, quite a bit of hours like putting together the next the next course or the mm-hmm. next like weekly screencast or, or something like that. Yeah. Which, by the way, is something I will never sign up for again, I hope. We basically one day like decide like we should we should do a one like a weekly screencast a short one and that will like keep people subscribed to this service because they're paying every month so they want to see new stuff so let's um let's have a recurring uh, production of this thing which is just like this never ending like content treadmill that you now can't get off of mm. because your revenue is tied to this uh, promise that you've made right um, so I uh, I will not do that again I I think <laughs> I think I hope I've learned my lesson from that. Yeah, and so like later on, you wrote a course on refactoring Rails, kind of on your own, and sold a video course, right? What what were sort of the the lessons that you took from working on Upcase to kind of what you decided to do then? Hmm. Um, I'm not. Sh- it would be hard to tease apart exactly what came from Upcase and mm-hmm. and what didn't. At at that point, I had a lot of experience making Rails focused educational content and right. selling it, and so it was kind of like. It was kind of just like the work I had been doing, only more independent. Mm-hmm. So, so tons of overlap, really. Mm-hmm. Are, are there other screencasts that you've watched previously, or other educational material that you looked at, and or certain trends where you felt like these kinds of things aren't really built the way that I would like them to be, and so that you sort of adjusted what you built to reflect, you know, what you would want to see? Not that much. I don't consume that much other like educational content for programming. Mm-hmm. I would say. The closest thing to an answer to that is that I, I really love showing code, like live coding, basically. So, like when I would, when I do technical talks, I try to have some at least some live com- coding component because I think it makes it uh, more interesting. I think the risk keeps the talk feeling more exciting to people, uh, and also you can learn a ton by watching people actually work. So there's the t- there's the topic I'm teaching you at the time, but you're picking up lots of other little things, just like. How do you get your cursor from here to here? How do, like what part do you edit first? Like what do you do when the test fail? What where are you looking at? What files are you opening? How you arrange the panes of your editor so you can see different things? Uh, and so I, I just think that's it's such a, a rich um, vein that it's it's kind of wasteful or kind of a missed opportunity if you don't actually show live coding when you're teaching developer topics to some extent. Uh, and so I made sure that for my course, uh, basically every topic I demonstrate is, is mostly like me taking. Uh, okay, here's some Rails code that I wrote and it, ha- it exhibits this problem or we have this goal and then I'm going to refactor it live for you uh, in the video. Yeah, I mean, I could say for myself when I went through refactoring Rails, I think what struck me was like the combination of, like you said, the the live coding, but also in a lot of courses, you'll basically be having slides or you'll be looking at someone talk and it's kind of just concepts, but you're not really seeing the code at the same time. And to me, I, I really like that you kind of just jumped right into the code and that you also had um, sort of the code uh, written down separately so that if you needed to review, you could just look at that quickly rather than have to you know, look through 30 slides again and, and find the thing that you were interested in. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad that worked well for you. Another thing I'd like to ask you about is, you know, in the past, you used to give uh, a fair amount of conference talks and they're very high energy. They're very kind of unique in their presentation style. And I sort of wanted to get your opinion on when someone is deciding to make a conference talk, like what is kind of the reason they should be doing this? Like what makes something a great conference talk versus something they should just make as a blog post or um, a post on YouTube or something like that? That's a great question. And I like the way you phrased that because that is actually my complaint of most talks is that most conference talks would be better as a blog post because you could skim it and take it in very quickly. Uh, and, and the information density is much higher. And so to me, every talk should be forced to kind of justify its existence as a talk and not a blog post or a YouTube video that you, you can watch at 2x or something like that. And so I try to take the opportunity of talks to do talk-specific things, uh, like 
talk to the audience a lot or have the audience do weird things or take questions during the talk, like let people heckle me and try to respond and that sort of thing. Like I, to me, a talk is a performance. It is not so much conveying information. Like the, I do want to teach people things, but you have to realize that like your, your first goal is kind of performance. You're on stage. You are, you have a responsibility to your audience to not be boring uh, in a way that a blog post does not exactly because the blog post is kind of, you know, the result of a Google search. And so someone is seeking out this information and they want to skim it and get it quickly. The, the talk experience is like you have chosen to spend some of your precious life uh, sitting here watching me. And so I take the responsibility of making it entertaining and, and interesting uh, very seriously. One of the things that kind of strikes me is that, yeah, a lot of times I'll be sitting in a conference talk and the actual information may be useful, but I'm just kind of bored, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And bored people don't learn is the thing. Like yeah. now in particular, you're competing with everyone else's laptop. And so it's like, well, okay, your talk has to be more interesting than the internet. For sure. So get to work. You know, you got <laughs> to do some stuff, like plan some, some crazy stuff. You're going to have to do some things, pull out some stops to, to actually be more interesting than that. Yeah. And, and like there was one where you're able to get the room to sing happy birthday to someone. So yes, um, definitely, definitely unique. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty much always trying to think of like, okay, with this talk, what kind of thing can I do that will get people to close their laptops? Like what, what gets people to actually snap out of the, you know, browsing and not actually paying attention stupor and pay attention to what I'm saying? And uh, unless I've missed them somehow, it seems like in the last few years, um, you kind of haven't given as many talks. Is there a reason why you stopped giving them? Um, so I got a little bit burnt out on traveling so much for talks. And at first it was great because it was like a great way to like do like company sponsored travel. And so I was just like every month I was somewhere else and I really enjoyed, um, that for a while. And then I got kind of burnt out on traveling around quite so much. That was only a small part of it. I would say that the bigger thing is just that I moved less out of the tech world and more into the business world. And there are just fewer conferences targeted at people that are doing the things I'm doing mo most of these days. Uh, and so... Um, I do still give some talks at like microconf, which is a conference for like people that are mostly starting like bootstrap software companies. Um, and so like my my skills and my knowledge are more appropriate there, but i'm I'm not nearly as up on the latest, coolest, you know programmer advice and tech stuff as I was before and And what would you say is like the primary role of a conference? like why why should somebody go to a conference and why should they speak at a conference? That's another good question. First of all, if you can speak, you probably should. Speaking is a great hack. The return on investment, I think, for speaking at a conference can be really, really tremendous. Uh, particularly, let's say you're, you're sort of introverted and you don't want to go and quote unquote network with people. If you give a talk, people will come up to you. They will network with you. Like, they'll come, like There's an already established conversation going. So it, it's a great way if you can stomach the being up on stage, then you can not have to go seek out people, which is wonderful. Um, but it's interesting to think about like what what is the role of a conference? Like, what, what should you be getting out of it? To me, I think the most useful things are, are friendships, actually. So I keep going to this, to MicroConf, this conference I mentioned, mostly because of the people that I met there. And so a lot of the things that I've learned and the good ideas I've taken out um, are from conversations with people, not during talks, but in fact, just kind of like the, the hallway track of, of hanging out with people and then conversing with them later. And I have friends, friendships that are now several years old. And it's because of those those sort of chance meetings, mm -hmm. and so the the talks, sure, like maybe you'll learn something on a talk, sure, but like they're going to be recorded, and so you can go watch that later. Uh, but to me, it's hard to rep, uh, replicate the experience of being in a room where a lot of people have the same interest, and so you have you know what you're going to talk about, like you, you have a the, the conversation topic is pretty much already there, and that's that's I find that really valuable. That's really interesting because it's sort of like you're giving the talk, but that talk is almost just like this sort of excuse or this framework for people to come up to you. So it's actually benefiting you a lot more and not necessarily just the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, hopefully it is useful too. Like if you give a bad talk, it, people aren't going to want to come talk to you yeah. <laughs> uh, nearly as much. So, you know, I, I try to do a good job anyway, but yes, I'm, I'm certainly getting something out of it. And there's a, there's a crazy, this is phenomenon I experienced a couple of times, especially in the tech world where if you give a talk about a thing a couple of times, you become the, the whatever guy pretty fast. I spent one year, I think, where I, I gave a Vim talk at like six or seven conferences. And then I was the Vim guy for like three years or four years after that, uh, just based on that work right there. Uh, so it's, if, if you want to establish, it's a really nice tool for kind of establishing 
expertise in something. And people will attribute to you even more expertise than you might uh, deserve. But I guess the thing is, is that, you know, the process of preparing for that talk probably makes you more of an expert than you were to begin with as well, right? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, it's not all smoke and mirrors. Another thing I want to kind of talk about is while you were at ThoughtBot, but also now, um, you know, you've been running podcasts for how, how long has it been now? Uh, something like five years. Five years, yeah. yeah maybe, so, maybe longer. So what is kind of the biggest benefit you feel like you've gotten out of podcasting? Um, I'm not sure what the biggest is, but there have been a few big ones for sure. Uh, the first was I started when I was at ThoughtBot for a while. The podcast I hosted was an interview show. And so we had on interesting people from the industry. Uh, and I didn't even think about how good that would be for me networking-wise at the time. And, then, and I didn't realize it for several months. Then I was like, wait a minute. I have the email addresses and have had a conversation with like all these like fairly prominent people in our world. So that's great. Uh, by the way, actually, maybe one of the best things I think, honestly, is just that you have an excuse to have a conversation with someone. It's flattering and useful to have someone on a podcast, like to be invited to a podcast because you don't have to prep. You get to have a long conversation uh, and, it, and, it, and everyone wins, right? Like your audience wins, the person on coming on wins, the host wins. It's just all, it's a very positive interaction. And so if you had emailed me and said, hey, like, do you want to talk for an hour uh, a couple of weeks from now? I'd be like, uh, like maybe, but probably not. But if you're like, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? It's like, yeah, definitely. That sounds great. Um, so it's it's a good, uh, it's, it's a nice to have a, even a small podcast just for the easy excuse of inviting someone on and having a, a chat with them. Mm-hmm. But then beyond that, like today, I would say the most value, I, I don't really have very many guests on my podcast these days, uh, but I still get quite a bit of a value out of it because uh, on it, I talk with my co-host about what it's like to start software companies and what we're doing week to week. And we're not even exactly trying to, to teach people things. We're just talking about what we're doing, but people learn stuff anyway. Like they, they follow the story. They, they sort of see the lessons you're learning in real time. Uh, and then it kind of, it gets them on our side, like having an audience, like a lot of my, um, a cust- the customers for Tuple first heard about us through the podcast. Yeah, it kind of kind of goes in with the trend lately of a lot of people talking about how you should you should learn out in the open, right? And I think like mm. maybe what are things that you can do that don't really require a lot of extra work for yourself, but that other people can learn from, right? Yep, totally. And and again, like I think that point that there's a point there that I think is really good, which is you don't even necessarily have to distill what you've learned. Or turn like turn it into lessons exactly. Like I I don't we don't sit down and say okay what are the what are our ten bullet points of advice based on what we've learned recently. We just talk about what we what we're working on and what the results are. And people can form their own conclusions and learn lessons that you aren't even seeing. By the way, which is <laughs> funny too. Uh, so it's that that is one great thing about working in public is that it's it can be useful just without much editing or without much attempts to kind of make it meta useful. And like when you personally listen to a podcast what are what are you sort of hoping to get out of it kind of that actually um the podcasts i enjoy the most these days are not teaching podcasts they are talking about what the people are doing in detail sharing numbers and explicit tactics and advice or not advice but just like things they're doing um and i really that's like my those are my favorite these days and i I found this really clearly like i've noticed i have a couple podcasts to listen to which are frequently the host or hosts talking about what they've what they're doing and what the numbers are and what's been working and, and what they're frustrated about or struggling with uh, and I really enjoy those episodes and then sometimes they'll do episodes like um, uh, 10 business books you should read this year and I always find I, I hate those episodes I find them so much <laughs> less useful and so it's like when oddly enough sometimes I find that when people start trying to teach and trying to distill I like it even less mm. Because it's sort of less, um, it feels less real, I guess, you know, kind of somebody kind of prepared, these are the things I'm going to teach you. um, But it's not just kind of like, these are the thoughts that are coming out of my head. And these are what this is what I really believe and feel right. Mm. Yeah. And the the conclusions that you've drawn from your own experience are maybe correct and are maybe not. And so if you just if you distill your experience down and then into a series of lessons, maybe I should listen to them and maybe I shouldn't. Mm. But if I listen to your experiences and draw my own conclusions and uh, have like a useful model in my head based on what happened to you, uh, that, that feels better to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of something that I hear often is that like the people who are kind of in the best position to, to teach others are those who are kind of learning as they go at the same time, you know, not so much like looking back. Um, these are the things that, that, that you should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I will say this is not to totally dismiss that kind of publishing, I guess. 
uh, like if I learn a useful thing while I'm writing some code, that's a great blog post. Like mm-hmm. if you discovered something like a cool method or an interesting technique or a, f- a shorter version of whatever, like that's a great thing to just write up and say, hey, I found this thing. Today I learned this thing. That's a great tweet. That's a great whatever. Um, for me, podcast, I, I guess this advice I think applies mostly to podcasts and, mm-hmm. and also just kind of my, my personal proclivities. Like some people probably want the extremely tactical, I've distilled it down for you advice. Mm-hmm. It's just for me, I feel like as I get a little further along in uh, my knowledge in various fields, I want less tactical advice and more kind of real world what's going on with you. And sort of like, what is the things you should think about when you're deciding what kind of form that your post should take? Like whether it should be something on Twitter or it should be a blog post or something you talk about on you know your podcast. Like what are you kind of thinking about when you make that decision? Um. For me, it's I don't I don't have a framework for it or anything. I'm I'm pretty uh, haphazard, I guess, with that. I tweet occasionally when it feels like it's a tweet shaped, tweet tweet sized insight, I guess, uh, and then most of the rest falls into my podcast because I I don't uh, actually write almost any blog posts these days, which is mm-hmm. not ideal, but it's true. Um, you kind of can't go that wrong. I feel like like you just whatever. I think the answer is kind of like whatever you're gonna do. Like maybe it's best as a blog post, but if you won't actually write the blog post, but you will write a tweet, then do that. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I've noticed for myself, like if I'm looking for tactical information, like you were saying before, you know, blog posts are really great just because you can kind of skim through it and see like, okay, this is the thing that, that I wanted to figure out or wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, you know, when you listen to podcasts, just kind of hearing people talk and kind of go back and forth on a problem that's similar to yours or maybe something that you might run into the future, even if you don't pick out like a specific insight at that moment, I kind of feel like sometimes it helps you, uh, you know, inform your decisions when you do run into something in the future. You kind of remember, even if you don't remember specifically it came from that podcast, um, you know, you kind of are a little better equipped for whatever you're dealing with. Yeah, I think our brains are pretty wired for stories. And so if you hear something in a story, I think it's more likely to stick in your head and be accessible later versus a sort of factual blog post is probably like I've I've written factual blog posts and then forgotten that I had written them <laughs> and like discovered them in Google searches later. So yeah, yeah. I know that information does not hang around. For sure. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, currently now you're the CEO at, at Tuple, right? And I wanted to talk about what that change has been like for you from going to working for, you know, a company like ThoughtBot um, to running your own company. Like what have been the biggest challenges or changes, you know, that sort of thing? Um, I don't know what the biggest challenges have been exactly. It's been, I mean, it's been a positive change. It's been great. Like I'm super glad I did it. I've wanted to do it for a long time. And when we came up with the idea for tuple and did some research into it it was like i just had this feeling like if i don't try this i'm going to really regret it and so i'm super glad we took the plunge there are a constant and changing set of challenges but that's actually what i enjoy in life typically is like i i like to solve new problems and discover new things and and stretch myself and so it's hard to think of any like one like oh it's way harder because of x Mm -hmm. it's 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 harder for a bunch of reasons. Like the st- stability is maybe the the biggest thing in the early days. Um, we are now like sustainably profitable, which is awesome. So, uh, but in the early days, like I was just burn. We were all burning cash every month and watching our net worths go down, uh, and that was stressful. So that was um, that was the biggest change challenge at first. I would say. Uh, now what is it? I don't know. Now is maybe deciding. Like it's probably still like it's actually. Um, I would say the biggest consistent challenge is mental state management so like for me being less reactive to good things and bad things and trying to stay calm and sort of focused uh, is a consistent (laughs) consistent hard part like when there's less at stake it's easier like i thought but i didn't really get that stressed honestly Uh, i get more stressed now um because the stakes are higher and it's like well this is so cool i really don't want it to go away and i hope i don't steer the ship into the iceberg and there's just like more ways to for the company to get hurt or die, uh, then like for your full-time job to go away. And in which case you just get another one. So whatever, but you can't just make a new company necessarily. Uh, so yeah, I would say that it's the mental side of things are, are much more challenging. Mm. Kind of knowing that you don't have this, I guess, safety net of things don't work out on whatever project you're working on. Um, if you're working for a company, 
they'll just kind of move you on to another project, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless you're like really high up inside an organization, I think it's hard for you personally to do that much damage. But with a three-person startup uh, where I'm the CEO, I certainly could hurt us. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's the, the stakes feel a bit higher there. And it's like, yeah, and, and this is, I own a third of the company. So it's like, if I, if I screw this up, I've really hurt myself a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it gives me a great lifestyle. Like, I don't want this to go away. I want to keep doing this for a long time because it's, it's actually really fun. So it, uh, that's, that, that, that part of it feels uh, a little more stressful. Mm-hmm. How about like access to specific resources? You know, when you work at a large company, you have all these employees that you have access to. You have services like healthcare or whatever that your company takes care of for you. Are there any things that you kind of miss in particular that you're you're kind of thinking like, oh, it would be so much easier if you know I had the same thing that I had back at my company? Not really, actually. Hmm. And it's, it's it's interesting to me that the answer is not really. Um, I think you can get a lot done with a small team and then the occasional consultant. Some of the back office stuff uh, is a little annoying, um, but like we're fortunate enough to live in like Massachusetts, so there's like a good healthcare answer here like health insurance was pretty painless for all of us to get and pay for yeah i don't what do i miss i don't know not much really <laughs> um which is man we're, we're pretty lucky yeah yeah that's awesome and it's, it's funny like we we work out of my uh one of my co-founders like second bedrooms in his condo and so but like which sounds like oh man like that's you know you're doing this crappy startup thing that's kind of like you're suffering but you know you you make it work and it's like actually no it's great like we have a kitchen and so we make lunch sometimes and we have like a comfy couches and we sit and play video games occasionally. And it's just, yeah. it actually, I don't feel like I'm deprived for in any way, really. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, in some ways it kind of sounds like uh, what people might think of people who went to school or went to college, you know, this experience of just working with friends, hanging out in an apartment, that sort of thing. It kind of sounds a little bit like that. Yeah, uh, it's, I've, I've said before, before that I think, I think we're in the good old days right now. Like it's just the three of us we're working out of a second bedroom. We're scrappy. We're light. Like we make decisions pretty fast. We we move pretty fast. I think the future is someday we look back and we go, wow, remember it was just just the three of us and we didn't have an office and there was no payroll really and there was yeah. just like, just like a simpler simpler time. And so I'm trying to appreciate what we have now. And like there there are downsides for sure, but I I feel like this is kind of, we're in a kind of a, a special time actually. Mm-hmm. And that kind of makes me wonder, you know, as you think about potentially growing the company. Um, you know, how do you plan to try and keep that feel? Or do you think you can keep that feel? Um, I don't know. I haven't done it before. So we'll see. Um, I have guesses. Uh, my, my first guess is that we should try to add people really slowly. Like, or, and, and first of all, be reluctant to add people. I have friends that have businesses that have employees and they say like, there's a, it's nice to add more people because you can sort of do more things, but you're adding a ton of overhead. Uh, so like, you know, wait to hire your first employee for a while. And that, that resonates a lot. Uh, so just like keeping what we have for as long as possible until it really hurts. And we feel like we can have a lot of benefit by giving it, it up is sort of the, the first order of business. Beyond that, I'm not sure. Like I, everyone wants to do it. Everyone wants to keep that sort of uh, fast startup execution ability. And yet everyone more or less loses it. Um, so it's clearly very hard. <laughs> Uh, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's a solved problem. I think it's something we'll have to work on a lot and learn lots of lessons. And there just seem to be, there seems to be this phenomenon as like that, that a company grows in order to execute a given plan that works and loses the ability to execute new plans, I mm-hmm. think, uh, because you're busy servicing like the current plan that has always worked and it's hard to cannibalize it and, and whatnot. And then there's just also just like the geometric explosion of communication directions as you mm-hmm. grow this. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of things that make that that are hard about that, and so I think it's like a multi-dimensional problem. Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting because uh, you know right now you're a team of three, so I would imagine that you know most of your communication is in person, face to face, right? That's right. Yep. And so I guess in your previous experience, you know, how did you kind of keep in communication with either your clients or your coworkers, you know, was it like email or was it chat? Like how did you kind of keep it all together in a, in a larger environment? Um, definitely a lot of chat. Like ThoughtBot was a Slack company when I mm-hmm. left and that was where most of the communication happened. It seemed like, yeah, as, uh, as scattered as that is, I think that was, well, that was sort of like the, probably the biggest piece of it was chat mm-hmm. combined with maybe like GitHub issues and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of, you know, a trend 
kind of in the last few years as more and more people are talking about um, working remote or the benefits of working remote, um, you're in this environment where you're able to have everybody in the same room uh, and you're able to have this really, you know, high level of communication in person. Um, in terms of the future of work, are, are more people going to come back to that environment or do you think kind of like this remote thing is, is going to pick up more and more? I think I agree with um, Alex McCaw here where remote will become more and more popular and it will also have substantial downsides. I think it, it has, like, there's a lot of benefits to remote work. There's some serious drawbacks to it. Uh, I think it will prove enduringly popular despite its drawbacks because of its, its substantial benefits. But I don't, I wouldn't call it an unalloyed good. I think there are, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's I think it's, I think it is somewhat inevitable, but also, like, we'll be dealing with the, the ramifications of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for your own company, you know, let's say for your next hire, would you ensure that there's somebody who could work with you guys, you know, locally? I think so. Yeah. So my first choice is to work on in-person teams. Mm -hmm. Um, and part of that is, is just my personality that I am very extroverted and I get my most energy working in person with people and talking to them and all that. Um, so I think given my proclivities, I would want that. Uh, and because again, I think there are drawbacks to remote stuff. Then again, we, we make a tool to make, programming remotely less painful right so like we're, we're trying to make it better and i'm happy to be part of the solution hopefully you know to mm-hmm. like so some of the drawbacks of remote work like the, the the positives are great awesome um one thing that is crappy about working remote is that it's kind of lonely yeah and i have found that a short like pairing session um with somebody is like actually really like boosts my mood substantially just having a, like a quick call with them a quick uh, tuple session is like actually kind of awesome so like a surprising uh, mood improver uh, it's kind of nice to like. I, I try to be honest about like you know what what my preferences are, but also like we're sort of on this mission of like let's let's make it so that if you do choose this, and we all and like we work mostly in person, but we also work from home or we go. I was uh, I spent a month traveling uh, this last summer, and so I was working remotely. So like we even though that we're a generally in person company, we still are remote. You know, several times a month. So I think everyone's kind of moving to that model. So when you are remote, what are you going to do? So that's we try to have a good answer to that. Yeah, that's an interesting point because it's kind of like as more people are doing remote work and more people are getting, um, like you said, lonely or just kind of feeling more disconnected, you know, maybe what we are going to see is more tools like Tuple, more tools that kind of make people feel like um, they have maybe not 100% the same as face-to-face, but, you know, getting closer, right? Yep. Yeah, I'd be shocked if that did not uh, be true, become true. Cool. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting insight. Kind of looking back at you know your work where you were just a software engineer to now being the CEO of a company, are there things that you sort of miss about you know the the type of work you used to do, or are you kind of all in on you know the the CEO hat? Pretty all in on the CEO thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy it uh, overall. I don't really have any complaints. I do love programming still, and I, I still actually get to do some programming, which is, is cool. Uh, I probably should do less and less with time, and I suspect I will. Um, so I, I think I will miss programming more and more as it becomes less and less a part of my day to day. But what I really enjoy most of all is just like the acquisition of new skills. And so giving up programming is um, made up for by getting to learn and practice new things and and figure out new problems. Mm -hmm. Were there any, like, I guess, critical decisions you can remember over the past decade that you feel like really shaped, you know, where you got to today? Yes. I would say that probably the biggest thing is that I got interested in teaching, not just programming, but like helping other people get better at it too. And so like when I said, I gave my first talk at RailsConf in like 2002, nine or something and it was a big moment for me i think because it turned out i loved it uh, and it also like raised my profile substantially and so suddenly like i i got like a hundred new twitter followers after my talk uh, and that basic trend has continued where it's like i i tend to make a lot of things and teach, teach try to teach a lot and in return i attract people that like learning things and then every so often i'm like hey i have this thing and it costs money uh, and there's this, this is a big group of people that are that know me and trust me from the other stuff, uh, and they are willing to buy it. 
And that uh, reality has let me do a lot of things like what I'm doing now. I, I don't think I'm not sure we would have made it uh, to profitability if I had not been building this audience this whole time and had this like large group of people that I could say, hey, I made a thing. I, I think you actually will like it. And they go, oh, yeah, that's Ben. I, I know he makes good stuff. We should try it. Um, so I'm very, very glad I, I got into this early because I think that's the, hard, the hardest part is just like how long it takes to, to build up these pe- this group of people. But it's probably had more impact on my life than almost anything else professionally. Mm. And what are sort of the things that you've done over the years to kind of maintain, you know, relationships with, with people, with, with friends and fellow developers to, to kind of keep this going? Um, I wouldn't say I've done an amazing job of it, honestly. I'd say Twitter and my podcast are kind of like my, my best answer to this. Um, I put out a weekly podcast for, like, like I said, six or seven years, I think now. I think that's, pro- and there's something special about the spoken word, like hearing someone actually talk about their story in their own, with their own voice that I think builds a connection that's, that's pretty real. Um, and so those are the main touch points. Like I don't have a weekly newsletter. I don't have a active blog. Um, I tweet sometimes, but not that much. Uh, but the, the podcast to me doesn't feel like work. And so I put it out every week and it, it's kind of probably the, it's the best. There's this sort of core group of people that have been listening to it for a long time or like that pick it up and, and listen to all of it. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably been the best vehicle for, for that. Hmm. And, and for somebody who kind of, they, they want to build up, you know, a set of people that they can count on or that they can learn from and things like that. What would your advice be to them? Like someone that wants to build a like professional network, you mean? Or Yeah, let's, let's go with that. My best source of that, I think, has been, first of all, trying to work somewhere with great people. Like I, I think, especially in the early days, working somewhere that has great coworkers is more important than working somewhere th- than other benefits, like a lot of money or a mission that you love or, or something like that. And then I would say, actually, like, like I, I touched on before, conferences have been also a really good source for me. I've just mm-hmm. like meeting like f- friends, like professional friends that I've, I've wanted to stay in touch with. Yeah. So it seems like it's a combination of finding some kind of public outlet, right? Whether that's writing blog posts or getting on Twitter or doing conference talks, right? It definitely helps. Yeah. If you're putting stuff out there that let people find you and mm-hmm. realize that you are sort of kindred spirits and that you should have a conversation, that's, that's useful, I think. Mm-hmm. And then being very intentional, I guess, about your career choices, trying to find people to work with that, you know, you really get along with and you can really all kind of grow together with, I guess. Yep, totally. And, and I've learned more from talented and generous coworkers than, than any, anything else, like any YouTube series or, you know, courses or whatever. Like there's nothing quite like sitting with someone uh, who's better at something than you are and having them teach you how to do it. That's just... Humans have been learning that way for thousands of years, millions of years, maybe, and it's uh, it works real well. For sure. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, whether it's software development or really any position, you know, the the human connection, just like working with people, learning with people, and just you know, just having fun, right? Like that's such a huge component to whether you're going to have a good time or you're going to have a bad time in this in this industry, right? Yep. Yeah. Quality of coworkers are important for like your learning, but also your happiness for sure. Cool. Well, that's probably a pretty good place to start wrapping up. Is there anything in this coming year that you're kind of looking forward to? Yeah, I think it's going to be an awesome year. So 2019 was our first year, like actually in business. Um, So like we had, we had zero customers in January of 2019 and now we have hundreds. And so we've, we've gotten past the like, okay, we, can we afford to keep running this? And the answer is yes. And like, now it's like, okay, we're, we're making some money. We're, we're on a good trajectory. And like, what, what can we do with this thing? Like we have this sort of interesting opportunity and can we keep it growing? Can we keep making the app better and better? Uh, I'm just really excited to kind of get to like version two of the company. Like it feels like we kind of just hit 1.0 where it's like, okay, the software is pretty good. The business model seems to work. Um, but we're sort of doing scrappy versions of a lot of things. And now it's like, okay, now we, we can actually take the time to invest and like really go back and, and do more things with more quality. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for all that opportunity. Yeah, it's kind of like this move from almost like the scrappy startup to you're almost becoming like a established player, I guess, if, if that's a good way to put it. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I would say we're not there yet, but yeah, uh, who yeah. knows? Yeah, that's exciting. And good luck to you in the future with Tuple. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. And thanks for your, uh, your good questions. Oh, thank you. Finally, like for people who want to check out Tuple or kind of see what you're up to, where should they head? Tuple is just tuple.app if you are interested in a remote pair programming app that works on macOS. 
for me, um, I have a, I host a podcast called The Art of Product. Uh, if you want more stuff like this, uh, that would probably be the way to go. Uh, and if you like Twitter, uh, I'm R00K on Twitter. Cool. And the very last question I have for you is, who is your favorite character in Smash Brothers? <laughs> oh, man. Um, that was a great question. And I applaud your, your research for it. Um, I'm probably going to go with Link overall. Nice. Just classic Link? Classic Link, yeah. I started off with Young Link, played a lot of him, uh, but I think Big Link is a little bit better fit for me. Very cool. Yeah, he's got a lot of tools. He's got the the boomerang, the bombs. Yeah, pretty cool. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you so much for for joining me today, Ben. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Notes of the show? Notes of the show can be found at softwaresessions.com. Thanks for listening.